Thrive Suite Productions presents The Perception Veil. Bigfoot. Sasquatch. In the southern parts of the United States, it's a skunk ape. In Australia, it's the Yowie. In Asia, the Yeti. People from all different cultures across the globe have shared traditional stories about supersized creatures that haunt deep woods and remote spots of the world, cryptids that have long eluded search and capture, and so have been resigned to myth and lore. It's easy to scoff at someone else's story when you yourself have never seen one. But for these folks who shared these stories with me, the hairy creature by whatever name you want to call it was as real and as scary as a heart attack. Here are three terrifyingly close encounters with a hairy creature that was anything but a myth. For those who take the time to listen to this, please don't judge me. I told this exactly as I remember it. I have not shared it with anyone, probably because no one would believe me. And... They would also think that I'm mentally unstable. Now that some time has passed, I myself sometimes think it never happened, that I imagined the whole thing. I wish that this had never happened to me, but I know it did. The following is based on true events that took place in central Vermont several years ago. Now, don't try and guess the location of this event. I have made minor changes to throw off any clever detectives who might know the local topography all too well. My friend owns a cozy, rustic house on the edge of thousands of acres of Vermont State Recreation Land. It lies between a handful of neighbors on a dead-end road that connects to a hilly, winding backcountry road somewhere in between Green Mountains and one of the state's largest lakes. Once the leaves fill out in mid-spring, one can barely see the property through the long, winding driveway. I often visit this beautiful location, sometimes spending the night or just dropping by unannounced to venture into the forest. On this day, I knew I would be alone and gone before anyone knew I was even there. And sometimes that's the way I like it. This day, some years ago, followed a nor'easter that formed drifts of light March winter snow, several feet high. I packed my phone, which unfortunately I couldn't take pictures with, and my pistol and knife, which I always do when venturing into the deep woods. I fastened my snowshoes and headed out for a you know, two or three hour hike. The sun was out and soon it would warm up, causing the snow on the upper tree branches to melt and fall, littering the ground with millions of potholes, making most tracks unreadable. Heading west, I followed the edge of a wetland that I knew would lead to a small brook that winds from south to north less than a mile in length. I would meet the brook at its most southern point and follow it north. The deep snow made the hike much longer than a summer walk. As I made my way to the west, there were few tracks to notice, perhaps the light scuffling of a squirrel or chipmunk off in the distance. 
The day was bright and sunny. I would soon be taking my jacket and gloves off before returning to the cabin around noon. I followed the natural beauty of the winding brook up and down its mounds and small hills coming to its peak on its east side. The brook began as a stream some two or three feet across and widened to 10 to 15 feet in places, often making it uncrossable. I loved this brook. I knew only a few hikers and hunters had ever seen it. It's too small to attract attention and so well hidden with very few entry points to its location. I walked the distance of the brook, coming to an open field to the north, where the narrowing stream went underground unseen and unheard. I turned around following the brook back to its midpoint and walked the woods back to my friend's place. It was a decision that I would later regret. Halfway down the brook, I turned to the east and was about 50 feet from the noisy rushing water. And there is nothing quite like the solitary beauty of Vermont when in one's favorite place. But at that moment, I came to a dead stop, not moving and barely breathing. What I heard at first, I took for a bear. Well, a pissed off bear at that. My stomach, active and unsettled, seemed to make its way to my throat. Adrenaline rushed through my body and my breathing became voluntary. I cannot, giving true justice, describe the deep, dark sound I heard once. And then again. I turned slowly, not making noise to look back at the brook. My thoughts went to the weapons that I had on me. My knife, an old bayonet from an old army rifle with about an eight-inch blade, and my pistol. I unsnapped my holster, lifted my pistol, and opened the cylinder. I reached into my zipped pocket, grasping a shell, and put it into the sixth chamber of my revolver. I carried a 22 Magnum for my walks in the woods, mostly for rabbit animals. I knew it wouldn't do much to a bear, except maybe piss it off, but it's all I had, and I wanted it fully loaded. I could not see movement, but the loud, deep growls were quickly getting nearer, and I slowly moved to the cover of some small pines with low branches. The wind was in my face as I looked to the west, giving me what I hoped would be another advantage of concealment. And then I saw it. I was low, and I instinctively wanted to flee away from what I saw, but I knew it was too late to do that. If I moved, I would surely be seen. I hoped the distance between me and it was enough. At first I saw its head and again thought it was a bear. But then I realized it was not a bear. It was walking on two legs, standing upright. It was a brown, blackish color and it was huge. I'm guessing at least eight feet tall. On top of that, 
it was not alone. There was a second creature, not quite as tall. It followed behind and to the side of the first and was carrying what looked to be a youngling. They were shaped like humans, but much, much bigger. And it was right then that the smell hit me. I almost gasped aloud involuntarily. It was a putrid smell, like a, a dead, wet animal surrounded by garbage. At least, I thought if I could smell it so strongly, maybe it could not smell me. The three creatures made their way to the brook where the rushing water was exposed, and they began to drink. They didn't put their faces to the water like animals do. They used their hands and often lifted their heads upright, moving from side to side as if to look for danger in the distance. As I took this all in, I thought, that's a friggin' Bigfoot and family. I tried to calm myself from my overwhelming sense of self-preservation to where I could observe and remember. I began making mental notes of color, size, smell, movement, even facial expressions. What a time to forget my binoculars. Up to this point, I had not been detected by the creatures. But as I was peering through the pine branches, frozen stiff in fear, the large creature was looking right at me. It kept its gaze directly on me. Oh, my heart was pounding out of my chest. Fear gripped me, and I was ready to panic and run for my life, but I knew that wouldn't be a good idea, and my better judgment prevailed. The creature stood up to its full height, wanting to make itself as tall as possible. The second creature, apparently sensing danger now too, stood and looked in my direction. I knew she was female as she clutched its young one and slowly backed behind what had to be the male. Then its face grimaced in anger, and it let out a blood-curdling roar that I had never heard before or since. So now I was in a catch-22. I couldn't stay where I was, but I also couldn't run. Remember, the snow was deep and powdery, and I would be no match for the long legs of this thing. It took two steps towards me, and for a moment, everything went black. As I began to refocus, I could see the creature standing on the other side of the water. The male turned slowly and began walking away from me, followed by the female. Oh, thank God, I said to myself under my breath. They were gone in moments. The male taking one last look in my direction as its head vanished into the woods. I waited for a few moments, slowly getting to my feet and rising, not wanting to be tricked by the thing. And finally, I said to myself, let's get out of here. I was still terrified it might follow me home, and I kept turning my head looking behind in all directions. 
Finally, getting to the steps of the house, I ripped my snowshoes off as fast as I could and made for my friend's hidden key to let myself in. I locked the door and, without hesitation, went upstairs and got a 30-30 and loaded several cartridges into the weapon. I looked out the window of the second floor, moving from bedroom to bedroom to bathroom to porch, making sure that I was alone. After a few minutes, I made my way downstairs and poured myself a stiff drink. It was Friday, and my friend would be home early, and I would be there to meet him. When my friend did arrive, he smiled and said, Hey, you should make yourself at home. But his smile soon disappeared as he studied my expression. We sat down in the middle of the downstairs, away from the French doors, and I described everything I had seen to him in vivid detail. After a while, he looked at me, smiling, and I knew he didn't believe me. So I suggested, let's take rifles and pistols and go to the stream tomorrow morning. He agreed. The next day took forever to arrive, and at daybreak, I woke my friend. He looked at me and stated that I was crazy and that I must have seen something the previous day. Let's get some coffee and some food and then we'll go. I rushed him through his breakfast and waited for him to put on his snowshoes. We each armed ourselves with rifles, pistols, and a cell phone. Again, this was really when you know, cell phones didn't have a camera. And so we made our way out into the woods and I kept having to slow down to wait for him. After what took like forever following my trail from the day before, we came to the small group of pine trees that I had used for cover. They were right over there, I said, pointing to the water. He looked at me as I hesitated and led the way to the water. The snow was disturbed near the brook and the tracks that led to and from the water. We crossed to the other side. Huh. Something big came through here, no doubt. Now, don't walk over those tracks. You definitely saw something. These don't look like your tracks at all. We followed those tracks for an hour or so before they suddenly just disappeared. None of the tracks were clear as the afternoon sun melted them to distortion. After searching for another hour or so, we made our way back to the cabin without seeing any other evidence of Bigfoot or his family. Now, this may not sound like the scariest encounter with this creature, but for me, my close encounter was close enough. The Bigfoot showed its fangs. My grandpa has worked all his life in the energy sector, starting as a part-time gas station attendant in the 1960s, working for Texaco most of his younger adult life, then eventually working his way up to vice president of a large natural gas company. That company has operations all over the world, but a big part of that company's operation is in the tiny town of Beluga, Alaska. Beluga is about 10 minutes from Anchorage by charter plane. The town's main street is also a gravel airstrip, and the permanent population was 32 as of the 2000 census. It's located on the tiny patch of stable land amidst the endless salt flats across Cook Inlet, 
from downtown Anchorage, easily the most remote place in the United States within eye view of a major city. In the summer of 2008, my grandpa and I were in Anchorage on a pleasure trip when he got a call from the site manager of the Beluga Rig Cluster. They said that a grizzly bear had wandered up to the crew cabin in the middle of the night, which in summertime Alaska means the two hours or so of twilight during which the sun ducks behind the mountains to the south. This bear had caused quite a mess digging through trash cans, uh, partially mauling an equipment cover, and ripping a tire off one of the crew's trucks. Nobody had seen the bear, but they had heard it snorting and grunting to itself as it worked. Now, any threat to the work site was a threat to the company, and bear or not, it needed to be dealt with. So my grandpa left me in the care of one of his friends and chartered a flight to Beluga immediately. When he got to the work site, he found exactly what had been described to him. A large, heavy-duty equipment cover weighing at least 200 pounds had been dragged free of the generator that it was meant to shield, and a corner of it had been ripped beyond repair. Trash was scattered about, and a dumpster was overturned. And sure enough, one of the company's Ford Explorers had been dragged from its parking spot several feet, with one of its tires destroyed. My gramps radioed back to us, telling us not to expect him home until the next day, and he got to work repairing the damage. Now, before going any further, I should mention that my grandpa is a staunch realist. He does not own a single fiction book. Well, I'll take that back. He does like the Jack Ryan series by Tom Clancy, but he mostly loves historically accurate films and old documentaries. And personally owns a collection of Wild West-era artifacts, including old spools of barbed wire, authentic vintage cowboy garb, including belts, buckles, boots, and hats, and his most prized possession, a 1903 Colt single-action revolver. He is also an avid outdoorsman and spends most of his weekends hunting, fishing, hiking, or biking, be it in Alaska, Colorado, where he also has gas rigs, or his home state of Texas. The point of me saying all of this is that he knows what is and is not a bear, and definitely is not one to embellish the truth. That being said, he guarantees that the thing that attacked his sight repeatedly that night was not a bear. According to my grandpa, he managed to call the insurance company for the truck and file a claim for it. However, the insurance company was unable to find a repair shop for the truck without loading it on a ferry to take it back to Anchorage, so he had to replace the tire himself. At the end of the day, there was still work that needed to be done in the morning, so he had a beer at Beluga's town hall slash general store slash church slash bar slash gas station. It's a very small town. And he headed back to the cabin to turn in. When he got in his Explorer, though, he said that something just didn't feel right. He felt eyes on the back of his head, like that feeling you get when there's a predator nearby. Now, he had an SNW 38 Special with him. For those who are not gun nerds, that's a 38 caliber compact revolver that shoots a 358 hollow point round you know, enough to stop a bear. And he said he unstrapped it and made sure it was ready to go as he got into his truck and started the engine. 
As he drove out of Beluga, he kept his eyes in the rearview mirror for anything that might have been following him. The sun was low in the overcast sky now, and it was dark enough that he had turned on his headlights, and he said that although he'd normally see elk and caribou, uh, ravens uh, on this drive, he did not see a single animal around. Suddenly, there was a loud bang, and he slammed on his brakes, believing that he either hit a rock or an animal. He cautiously got out of his car, and he drew his gun and he rounded the front of the car to find a large rock sitting next to the front right quarter panel, which had an equally sized dent in it. He was not near a cliff or anything for a rock to have fallen from. He said he could feel those eyes on his back again as he picked up and examined the melon-sized rock. Another bang and the sound of breaking glass. This second rock had flown through the air from behind him and hit the truck again, knocking the mirror off. He whirled around and fired off two warning shots to scare the assailant away and would later describe to me having seen a large creature about the size and color of a grizzly bear, but with long arms like a gorilla. He said he did not get a good view of its head through the trees, but he claimed that it ran away on two feet after the gunshots were fired. He made note to tell me that as it ran, it crashed through the forest. As he put it, not like an animal, not quiet like a deer or a bear, definitely not afraid to make noise as it ran. Anyway, he got back to the drill site, told the other workers what had happened, showing them the fact that two shots had been fired from his gun as evidence, as well as the damage to the Explorer, and they agreed to use full perimeter lights that night and have somebody stand watch. My grandpa took first watch, stayed awake, and near the cabin's front door overnight, and was relieved of duty just before the sunset when he went to sleep. He was awakened by a shout. The sun had just risen, meaning he had only been asleep for an hour or two, and he was still dressed. Running to the cabin door, he said that he saw the creature at the far side of the site. He said he could see its face this time, and it was grinning and baring its fangs at them like an ape. And In fact, he described it as being bipedal, about six, seven feet tall, based on equipment that it was standing close to, and being covered in golden brown hair, shaggy like a grizzly bear. He says that some of the crew members started throwing stuff at it, and someone fired a gun off, and it disappeared again. There were a few other sightings over the following years. The company eventually closed its operations in the area after an unfortunate ecological disaster that you may have heard about. Maybe this hairy creature was just an ecological warrior attempting to protect his natural habitat. Tennessee Bigfoot. This is an encounter I had when I was 23. It was the fall of 2004, and my world was turned upside down with an experience I have never shared until now. I was young, newly married. I had been a city boy all my life, so living out in the woods of Tennessee was a new experience for me. 
Every evening I would venture out and feed our big red bone dog. His name was, appropriately enough, Red. He was a massive, gentle giant. Red would run free all day until the evening would come. Then he would meet me at his doghouse with his big tail wagging. One evening around dusk, I walked down to his doghouse, bag of food in hand, ready for him to jump up on me with his massive paws. But this evening, Red was in his doghouse, whining. Red, what in the world is wrong with you, man? What are you afraid of? I poured out his food and turned to go back in the house when something caught my eye. Something was reflecting the newly risen moon. I squinted to see what seemed to be two big eyes staring at me. The eyes didn't move. To my left, I heard my wife open our back door and yell that our dinner was getting cold. I turned to her and said I was on my way, and turning back to check on Red, I noticed the eyes had moved. They were now looking in my wife's direction. Then I saw the outline of the head that the eyes belonged to. Huge. Massive. The large head turned back toward me. I felt as if someone had thrown ice-cold water on me. Being young and thinking myself invincible, I yelled, Hey, get out of here. The figure did not move. And Red, he just whined again. The back door swung open again, and I heard my wife yell, Are you coming? Get in the house, I screamed. My wife looked wildly around and asked, Why? Get in there! I slowly moved toward Red's house, and I grabbed him by his collar, talking to him as if he understood me, and I whispered, When I start running, you follow me. Then I took off like a shot from my house. I finally made it to my back porch and was relieved to see Red had followed me. Slamming the door and locking it, I peeked out the shade. What's going on? My wife said. Shh. As I watched, the figure stood up, and it was massive. I'm a decently sized guy, six feet two, 240 pounds, but this thing dwarfed me. Night had fallen, so I could not make out all the details, but there was enough moonlight that I could make out the outline of this thing. I tried to explain what had just happened to my wife as I watched this giant make its way out of the woods, walking slowly around the doghouse. My wife ran to our bedroom, and I could hear her talking to her dad on the phone from the kitchen. Her dad was a true outdoorsman, camouflaged everything, and he only lived a few minutes down the road. She slammed down the phone and ran back to my side. Dad's on his way and she trailed off as she was seeing what I was seeing. This creature was now heading towards us. It had a human-like form, but it was out of proportion with the arms almost reaching down to its knees. We ducked down and rested our backs on the door. My mind raced as I tried to think of anything we could use for a weapon. A few moments passed and everything went silent. We decided to take a look. Slowly, we raised a shade, and the creature was still there, 
a few feet from our back porch, standing, staring, and swaying back and forth. My father-in-law then pulled up in our driveway. The lights hit part of it, and I could make out the shaggy hair that seemed to cover the whole massive body of this thing. Her dad banged on the front door until we unlocked it. Walking in, he looked a little amused. <laughs> Raccoon, he said jokingly. Uh, not quite, I replied. Just then, my wife's little brother entered the house, carrying his rifle. I felt a little better knowing we weren't alone. Someone's on our back porch. Okay, okay, I'll take a look, her dad said, seemingly annoyed. We waited in the living room. I don't see anyone. And he froze mid-sentence. His face dropped as he stared out our living room window. We all followed his gaze and all fell silent. Her brother raised his rifle and swung the door open. Jamie, no! Her dad yelled frantically. It's not a person, Jamie yelled back at us. Now, this creature was on our front porch, bumping our swing as it paced across the porch. Jamie's gun never left the door. We could see the outline of the creature as it walked from one side to the other, making loud thumps with every step. And then we heard a slight crunching noise. We looked at each other, puzzled. The dog food. Was it a bear, Jamie? No, it's on two legs, and it growled at me. And we all sat on the couch that night, taking turns, checking out the windows. Now, that was the only encounter that we had with this creature. A few months later, we moved to a neighboring town. Yeah, sadly, my wife and I divorced a few years after that. Some people will scoff at what I've told you here, but I'm sure of what I saw. I was there, and I know that... Sometimes, there is something that watches from the woods. So, what do you think? Is hearing believing? Or do you have to see one for yourself with your own eyes to truly believe? There are so many stories of encounters with these creatures, television shows dedicated to tracking them and yet we still wonder about their existence. <laughs> With everybody now carrying a camera around in their back pocket, maybe one day we will have the true visual proof that we desire. That is, if we aren't too afraid to remember we actually have it. But until then, these creatures will lurk just on the outskirts of the perception veil. Hey, this is Steve White, the host of The Perception Veil. Thanks for stopping by and listening to this episode. These were sent to me by real people about their real experiences. So now, if you have a paranormal, supernatural, sasquatchy kind of story that you would like to share, I'd love to read it. Send your story to theperceptionveil at gmail.com and I'll be in touch. Also, if you like the podcast, rate and review wherever you listen. And if you'd like to support it in another way, well, you can buy me a coffee. There's a link in the show notes. Be well.
and I'll see you on the other side of the veil soon. This has been a Thrive Suite production. Copyright 2024. All rights reserved.